together. Lord God, we do bow before you with thanksgiving. Thank you for laughter. Thank you for uh, the many things we have to celebrate. Thank you that we can also every week celebrate your word. Thank you that your word feeds us. Your word challenges us. Your word corrects us. Your word trains us. Your word helps us to know you better. Your word helps, helps us to live the way that you want. So, Father, we pray that this day your word would do its work in each of our lives. Thank you for the salvation that we have been freely given because your son willingly went to Calvary's cross and took our place. Thank you that we can be part of your family, that we can have eternal life by simply putting our trust in him and his finished work. Now, Lord, we ask you to guide us, teach us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the early church fathers by the name of Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In our passage this morning from Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60, we encounter the first martyr in the church. The first martyr in the church. Interestingly enough, the word martyr comes from the Greek word marturia, which means testimony or witness. Stephen's testimony, his witness, led to him giving his life for the sake of the gospel. Marturia means to bear witness or to testify or to be a witness. Stephen paid the ultimate price for carrying out Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will wait till you receive power from on high, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Stephen paid the ultimate price for being a witness. Most of us will never pay a price that high, but some through the centuries, some today have been called and are being called to pay the ultimate price so that they can be a witness for Jesus Christ. That's what we're encountering in our passage today. To understand the context of the passage, Israel once again rejects God's truth and murders God's messenger. That's what the message has been from Stephen to the Sanhedrin Israel is once again rejecting God's truth. Israel is once again murdering God's messenger. The main point that this passage is teaching us is this. God's servants can be silenced, but the Gospel cannot be stopped. God's servants can be silenced, as Stephen was, but the Gospel cannot be stopped. Opposition 
even fierce opposition to the gospel will ultimately fail. However fierce the opposition to God's servants, they can find peace as they look to God, as they look to heaven. Thirdly, we see in this passage that the Holy Spirit gives us boldness to witness and boldness to endure to the end. Courage and grace marked Stephen. Well, as Chris shared with us last week, Israel had a history of failure to perceive God's true work. They had a pattern of rejecting God's truth. They had a a tendency to become bound by man's tradition and to ignore God's truth. Stephen told them that neither the law nor the temple were meant to be permanent. They were precursors to something better. They were the means to the end, not the end in themselves. They were to show men and women their true need, to cause them to seek spiritual redemption, to cause them to seek God Himself. That was the purpose of the law. That was the purpose of the temple. They were precursors to something better. Ultimately, justification by grace through faith would be the way we are accepted to God and in His presence. Rather than a temple, God today indwells His people. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are the the temple of God. See, the law was temporary to lead us to Christ. The temple was temporary because we are today God's temple. Now, there'll be a millennial temple when God once again deals with His nation, God once again deals with His people, but today, during this age, during the church age, we are God's temple. We are God's dwelling place. But the Israelites had made idols, as Chris shared with us last week. They had made idols of the temple. They had made idols of the, of the law. Having Moses, having the law, having the temple did not guarantee proper worship, did not keep them from rebelling against God. They turned them into virtual idols. Israel's history is one of God trying to expand His people's thinking to see Him in all of His greatness and of His people trying to make Him man-sized. Israel's rejection of Jesus and of the Gospel was another failure by Israel to take God's way. Now, before we get into the results of Stephen's message, I want to confront each of us with the thought that as believers, we must be sure that we remain open to God's voice in the Scriptures and that we maintain a vital relationship with Him and not become bound 
to human tradition and to religion. It's so easy to follow tradition. It's so easy to become religious without being holy. We must remain open to God's voice and we must not reduce Him and to the, make Him man-sized. Well, that's what's happening here. We read in chapter 7 and verse 54, when they, that is the Sanhedrin, when they heard this, that is the message that we were taught last week, the message that I've just tried to recap, when they heard this, and you have to look at verses 51 to 53 of chapter 7 where Stephen applies everything he had already taught, and you can imagine yourself as one of the Sanhedrin as Stephen cries out, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him." You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. I mean, you can see it. It's kind of like Emeril Lagasse preparing a meal and kicking it up a notch. Bam! 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 When they heard this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. As one writer said, they cut his speech short. They had heard more than they desired. They became furious. Their reaction is described by various writers as savage fury, blind rage, heartless cruelty. They became more and more and more agitated, I believe, because they were under the conviction of God. I believe it's because they understood the truth of Stephen's words. They had chosen tradition instead of God. They had chosen idolatry Worshipping the law and the temple instead of worshipping God. And they could not take another word out of Stephen's mouth. Now there's something I want you to see. There's a contrast that goes on throughout this passage that I want you to notice. When they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But... Stephen, here's a contrast. Here's a contrast. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen wasn't frenzied. Stephen, under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, could face whatever came into his life. 
They were furious. They were agitated. They couldn't take any more. They were holding their ears. They didn't want to hear any more. They just wanted to vent their fury on Stephen. But instead, look at Stephen. He's looking up to heaven. He's looking up to heaven. Oh, how many times for you and for me that we get into situations and we can't do anything but look around us. We can't do anything but see the circumstances. I don't think Stephen could have stood that. But when the Spirit is in control of a person, He gives them boldness not only to speak, but He gives them boldness to take whatever consequences come because of their witness. And that's Stephen. Stephen is calm. Stephen is serene in the midst of all this anger, all this agitation, all this fury. All this rage. Stephen is calm and serene, looking up to heaven. Now, it's interesting. He looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open. Now I want to refer you back to chapter 6 and verse 15 where it said this, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intensely at Stephen and they saw that his face was like what? An angel. There was a glow about Stephen. And we don't know where that glow came from, but it's interesting as some have speculated, such as F.B. Meyer, great writer, expositor of the Word of God, that that glow came from the Shekinah glory when the door of heaven opened. When that door of heaven opened and the glory of God shone upon Stephen. Myers explains it this way, What wonder that those who sat in the council beheld Stephen's face as if it had been the face of an angel. The light that shone there was not as when Jesus was transfigured. In that case, the light of the Shekinah broke out from within. But here the glory of God shone from the open door of heaven. So the sunrise smites the highest peaks. Stephen reflected the glory of God. As Jesus opened heaven's door to receive Stephen to himself. Can you imagine that? In the midst of all this fury and anger, Stephen looks up to heaven, heaven's door opens, and Jesus is standing. Some people have speculated, why is he standing? Normally, when you see him in Scripture, he's seated after the resurrection and ascension. He's seated at the right hand of God. Of God. There are many who believe that he was standing to receive Stephen.
when we look at what the Scripture says. By the way, this is the first of three manifestations of the glorified and risen Christ. There are three in the New Testament. Three manifestations of Christ after He was risen and ascended into heaven. This is the first in Acts 7. The second is to Paul in Acts chapter 9 when the resurrected, ascended Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. The third is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. In chapter 1 and verses 12 to 16, that's the revelation of Jesus, the glorified, risen Jesus, to John the Apostle. Well, some have speculated what it means when Jesus is sitting and what it means when He is standing and I think it is interesting speculation. Some say that seated, when Jesus is sitting, it symbolizes His finished work of redemption. It symbolizes His finished work of redemption. His work is complete. His work of redemption is complete. Remember one of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross is, It is is what? Finished. It is finished. In Greek, it's tetelestai, a word that was used to mean to show a bill had been paid, a word that was used to mean a task was finished, a word that was used to mean a sacrifice had been offered, a word that was used by the Greeks to mean that a masterpiece was completed. All of those happened at the cross. When Jesus is sitting, it symbolizes His finished work of redemption. Others speculate that Jesus standing symbolized His work of sustaining His own. He does that for you and He does that for me. He sustains us. I am assured of my salvation because Jesus' work is finished. And I'm counting on Him, not myself, not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. I am assured of Jesus' help because He is standing in heaven. I'm assured of His help in my service for Him and in my suffering for Him. Verse 57, after hearing Him say, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God what about that statement made them so furious that they rushed up to grab him and stone him to death? Well, by saying Son of Man, by recognizing that Jesus is the Son of Man, he's repeating what Jesus had said before the high priest. 
when he referred himself as the Son of Man. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man is a messianic title that represents the Lord's universal rulership. Access to God is now through Jesus Christ, not the temple, not the priests. They clearly clearly understood what he was saying. They clearly understood what he was saying. And so at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. That was the penalty for blasphemy. They understood clearly the implications of Stephen's message. Israel was guilty. The law was temporary. The temple must be done away. That was blasphemy. And they grabbed him and they dragged him outside the city. and began to stone him. Now stoning was a brutal form of execution. What would happen is they would strip the victim of their clothes. They would take them either to a high hill, a large, tall rock, or they would build a scaffolding that was at least twice the height of a normal man. And after stripping the victim naked, they would tie their hands behind their backs and they would throw them either from the cliff or they would throw them from the high rock or they would throw them from the tall scaffolding. That was the job of the first witness. His hands tied behind him, the victim would fall face down. If that didn't kill him, he was rolled over, and then the second victim, the second witness, would roll a stone off the rock or the scaffolding, either onto the victim's head or onto his heart. That was the process of stoning. Meanwhile, we're told the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're introduced here to Saul, and he'll become very important, as you know, to the book of Acts. He will become soon the main character in the book of Acts. And Saul, by holding and guarding their clothes, was giving his approval to what was happening. The irony of all of this is Saul is the man who would carry on Stephen's work later. Because God can't be stopped. And the Gospel can't be stopped. You can rid 
a situation of God's servant, but you can't stop the message of the gospel. You can't stop the gospel from going forth. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That was reminiscent of the Lord from the cross. Remember, that was what he said, I believe in his seventh saying, when Jesus committed his spirit to the Father. If he hadn't done that, Jesus could not have died. He was in control of the process the entire time. It's interesting to think that Stephen says here two things that Jesus said from the cross. The first is this, committing his spirit to the Lord. It's interesting to think that when heaven's door opened and Stephen saw his Savior, that Jesus' body still bore the marks of the cross. His hands still bore the nail marks. His feet still bore the nail prints. His side still had the hole. It would be interesting to speculate that as Jesus looked up into heaven and saw Jesus ready to welcome him into his presence, that he thought of Jesus on the cross and the things that he said from the cross. He committed his spirit to the Lord. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He not only committed his spirit to the Lord in the same manner as the Lord did on the cross, but he prayed for his enemies even as Jesus did from the cross. Remember Jesus repeatedly, the first of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, he repeatedly said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In English, we get the idea that he said it once and done. In Greek, you understand that the Verb form is an imperfect verb form, which is repeated action in the past tense. What that means is Jesus repeatedly said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's why in the course of that, those hours on the cross, one of the thieves came to faith. As he was demonstrated by Jesus, such grace and forgiveness. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
What a beautiful. picture of death. Death holds no more terror for a believer in Jesus Christ than that of going to sleep. Scripture repeatedly uses sleep as a metaphor for death, but only for believers. Isn't that interesting? It repeatedly uses the metaphor of sleep for death, but only for believers. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 15, Philippians 1, where Paul said whether to depart and be with Christ, a believer goes immediately, their spirit goes immediately into Christ's presence as at death, and their body awaits the resurrection. Second Corinthians 5, John 11, Jesus uses sleep to speak of Lazarus' death. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses sleep to speak of believers' death. In that case, it was in the judgment of God. He fell asleep, went immediately into the presence of God, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. That set off um, unbelievable persecution. As we'll see next week, it served to move the church out of Jerusalem as Jesus had told them they must do in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so all but the apostles who stayed behind in Jerusalem were scattered out of Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria. And we'll see more about that next week. One writer said this, the Sanhedrin silenced a voice that was upsetting a city but without realizing it, they were awakening a new voice that would upset an empire. See, God's servants can be killed, but the gospel cannot be stopped. Let's bow. Father, thank you for this account of Stephen's giving his life for the gospel, the first in the age of the church to do that. Thank you for his courage. Thank you that your spirit gave him the peace and boldness that he needed at that moment in his life. But thank you, Lord, also that death holds no terror for the one who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thank you for the power of your gospel that goes forth 
even in the midst of difficulty and persecution. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.